Junpo, my friend, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, you know, dealing with the old age and medical shit, but you wouldn't know about that. <laughs> Absolutely not. What I would know is that we are here to discuss an absolutely riveting book. It's uh, the story by Keith Martin Smith of your life, basically. It's a, it's a biography, and it's called A Heart Blown Open, The Life and Practice of Zen Master Junpo Dennis Kelly Roshi. And I have to say, um, I don't think I can ever recall knowing uh, a life story that is as varied and as rich and as uh, wild and as full of extremes as yours, all leading to what I think can only be called a happy ending. Keith states, for instance, his life has been almost unimaginably full of different roles, world traveler, seeker of wisdom, ascetic, holder of vast wealth and power, lover of women, homeless mendicant, wanderer, fearless warrior, father and husband, spiritual adept, yogi, federal prisoner, family deserter, hedonist, Zen master. And that is uh, <laughs> kind of a, a, a little bit of a summary of your lifestyle, and I, I think it's this incredibly varied and rich lifestyle that has led you to the sort of pinnacle of spiritual teacher that you have become, and the founder of a, a really remarkable new form of meditative practice, which will get to in a moment called Mondo Zen and uh, it, it just in every way a truly remarkable story I mean it, it must have been something I mean it's one thing to see it you know from the outside like you will if you read this book it must have been quite quite something to see it from the inside well I tried to stay busy <laughs> that's your story and you're sticking to it <laughs> Well, stay busy, you did. One of your most significant and earliest memories, you're somewhere around three years old, your parents are arguing, reading from the book, lying on his belly in his urine, stuffed under a bed with a week's worth of dust and dirt. A strange stillness came to him. The fear and the contraction and the sense of separate, terrified self fell away, and there was only a sense of pervasive peace, an overriding clarity, and an understanding that there was nothing to fear, an understanding that was beyond even fear. The toddler stopped fidgeting. His face relaxed from his spasm as he opened his eyes to see everything around him. There was no sense of fear, no sense of what should be, no sense that things were worse or better. There was awareness of his body and of a silence out of which everything arose. It was a peace deeper than anything 
his young mind associated with his mother's embrace or her breast unbound to anything or anyone. It just was. The feeling of deep peace faded slowly like a dream, and the young boy was suddenly acutely aware of how cold, how awful his pants felt against his body. Although the experience was gone, that sense of a peace deeper than anything he had ever known scored itself into the memory of the toddler, burned itself into the forming gray matter of his young brain, leaving a permanent marker for a sensation of stillness outside of time, space, or the sense of a separate self. For a few moments in early 1945, Dennis Kelly had been utterly, radically free. As he was dressed and fretted over by his mother, the safety and security she provided were but a shadow of what he had just experienced, and mother would never again comfort him quietly the same way. A longing to return to that place of freedom outside of time and place and personhood was implanted, and Dennis Kelly would spend half a lifetime attempting to recapture it and make it his own. That's a pretty special memory. Yeah, right now I, I'm laying in that little pool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, one of the reasons, like, uh, in our Zen practice, I'm from the Rinzai School, and we practice very severely and very intensely. Right. What I say is that's simply to make it memorable. Yeah. To, to actually carve a slight indentation in your ego. Right. So it's like long, arduous practice. And and I recognize there, there are other moments. Once a federal agent stuck a, a pistol to my forehead and cocked the hammer. <laughs> and I'll never forget the sound of that cocking hammer, oh. that old carbon steel on my temple. I'll imagine. It's moments that do it. And that first moment, of that was, in a sense, it was just pure Turiya. Yeah. It was, it, was, it was witness deeper than self-reference, and we call that dhyana or zen. Yeah. So I had that experience, and of course I'm born into a into a uh, ego and into a, a cultural subjective conditioning. Right. Conditioning that says I'm this self and everything, and I've got a totally a whole other experience of reality. Right. I have no formulated ego or mind yet, and no way to understand it. Right. So it did. It built a fire, and then the then was what, what, where, what, and that where, what question just would not go away. Right. You know, everything, everything was superficial and meaningless, and behaviors were beyond understanding. Right. Like from that perspective, uh, violent intervention because of fear or caring is inconceivable. Yeah. Yet that's what my whole life was. And yeah. then I went into denial and rejection and you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. The whole ego construct. I won't be that way. Right. And then again, from another point of view, the activities that caused it that I would not wish on anyone, right. I wouldn't trade for anything. Yeah. So this is where you're getting into, you know, Trunkpo, when I studied with him, used to say to me, see the perfection. Right. Or, or you said, everything is ate. Right. And it was like, oh, my God. You know, so then it's like, well, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So everything is happening <laughs> and everything is beautiful. Right. So it, 
Yeah, so I started real early with the quest and the need to understand. And once you've had that opening, it's no longer about you. Right. It's, you know, the, the question, the burning question just cannot go away. Right. And, I, you know, I think there um, really is truth to that, that, that this experience in one way or another sort of seared itself into your brain at that early age and, and became a reference point that you were, in a sense, looking for, you know, for the rest of your life. And happy to say, did find it and did, and did help many, many others find it as well. But it's extraordinary to have it, you know, occur at such an early age and, you know, have such a profound impact, uh, it's quite, uh, really quite extraordinary. And you mentioned the, you know, experience of a, a revolver drawn and, and put to your head. Several very explicit types of, of powerful experiences like that marked your life. And I have to say, one of the ones that just had me absolutely riveted because one of the odd things about it was how believable it seemed. And you'll recognize what it is in just a moment. By the way, you're, you're, I mean, you're born in 1941, Green Bay, Wisconsin. 42. April 42. 42. You have uh, brothers, Patrick and Michael, a very loving mother, but a brutal and alcoholic father who often beat the kids for no reason really at all. One day when you're 14, you found your brother, Michael, in the basement, badly beaten. Dennis took his father's single-shot 20-gauge shotgun out of the closet, moving slowly and deliberately. His breath became that of a larger being, a curious sensation, and his mind was utterly at peace. No thoughts came or went. There was only a deep awareness of what he was doing and the sensual feel of the gun's cold metal to his touch. In some ways, his father was amazingly predictable. He had gone to work that day and from work to the bar where he got drunk. He came home and ate dinner, drinking more. Dennis had somehow angered him and was beaten unconscious. Bill Kelly then left to drink some more, after which he would come home and pick a fight with her mother. His father and mother would scream at each other for 15 minutes downstairs before his father would pass out and the house would go tiredly quiet. Once his father was passed out in bed, Dennis was going to sneak down the stairs to his parents' bedroom, enter silently, and fire a single shotgun blast into his sleeping father's temple, with the two other shells held between the fingers of his left hand just in case something went awry. Dennis was no more concerned about this turn of events than a Dust Bowl farmer who had decided the family dog had gone rabid and had to be put down for its own good and for the good of the family. Such were the way of things. Dennis sat on the bed, listening to the gentle sounds of his little brother breathing steadily. He heard the kitchen door open rudely downstairs, 
banging into the wall and rattling the glass and the panes. Uncertain steps followed, walking heavily and tiredly across the floor and through the house, weaving into his parents' bedroom. Dennis rose from the bed, making his way down the stairs in his stocking feet until he stood in front of his parents' closed door, the shotgun held in his right hand, finger across the trigger. Reaching out with his left, he turned the knob and silently pushed the door open. His father's life would soon be over, but his brothers and sisters and mother would live on without worrying about the rabid dog biting them ever again. Whatever might happen to him for killing his father was not even considered. Dennis moved through the darkened doorway, raising the loaded shotgun as he crossed the threshold. To his surprise, the bed was empty and still made, and so he pushed the door open further, stepping fully inside, hoping his father might be standing somewhere in the room. His mother sat in a chair by the window, her body bathed in the softness of the light filtering in from the street outside. She turned and saw her second oldest son standing in the doorway of her bedroom, a shotgun in his hands, finger at the trigger. She merely looked at him. Without a word, he turned and left, pulling the door shut. The incident was never spoken of, but afterward his father never again no matter how drunk or angry, struck his children. This was not out of fear of Dennis, but out of some kind of respect that his son was willing to take such definite and resolute action. Bill Kelly's post-traumatic stress would find expression through emotional violence and cruelty, but his hands had been stilled. That is an extraordinary event. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. It makes me a little uh, sensitive to to hear that and live it again. I can uh, imagine, and I was, I, uh, I appreciate I you letting me read that. I it can't say, be easy hearing it. I want to say clear one thing: uh, that uh, he was a remarkable human being with very very large damage returning from the war and all the violence. He was in the Pacific Theater. For, for three years fighting the Japanese. Right. There was cruelty on both sides. The Japanese used to crucify the airmen they captured. They'd, yeah. cut, they'd hang them on crosses and cut them and let their intestines hang out, and they'd take them four or five days to die. Yeah. He was caught in the middle of that. Yeah. And so when he came back, he had nowhere to way to process it. Or, and sober, he was the sweetest guy. And, yeah. you know, he taught me to box. He taught me about truth. He taught me to work hard. He taught me to fish and hunt. Right. He taught me, you know, so much that was great. And then he would go, he would drink for relief, and he would, he would, all the violence would come out of him. Right. So what happened is that just came to an end for me. And again, right. I entered into pristine clarity, and there was no moral or ethical problem. It was right. time to take care of business. Right. And uh, not in a dissociated away and not in a violent way right, right? and uh, just with absolute clarity and certainty and then the gods intervened you know? I'll say yeah you know the book does a good job of explaining the difficult circumstances of your father's life and what would you know kind of slowly led him 
into you know states that were uh, sometimes cruel and and angry, and that he really did start out and essentially was a sweet man. And later on, you do make a kind of uh, peace with your father, and the story of that is is very touching and very telling, and. Uh, also shows him at uh, what can only be called a, a, a terrific sense of humor. He's very funny. He was very funny and very brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So what happened is my father and I, we'd, we'd go off together for a few days on fishing trips and places. We'd meet sometimes in various places in the world in the old days. And right. I'd fly him someplace, and he just he and I would fish for a few days. And he always wanted to go to Canada. Right. Flew him up into Canada in a private chartered plane on our own lake. We had right. a cabin and a lake, and every day we went out and we fished for uh, Northern Pike. And the name of the game was Catch the Smallest One. They were all three feet in length plus, so we were always trying to catch a baby so we could eat it. Right. And we let everything else go. Right. So, but he, I secretly planned this trip to tell him that I would never see him again. That right. Because his alcoholic abuse, the the grandkids wouldn't even sit in his lap. He was so such such a grumpy old character. Right. So I told him that, uh, you know, I said, okay, Papa. So I flew in, and we brought a 12-pack of ale with us. And yeah. we both drank in about five minutes. Right. Because uh, he wouldn't drink liquor when he was with me. He only drank beer. So, yeah. And the pilots, he said, what should I bring tomorrow? Because he landed every day with a check on us. And my dad said, bring another 12-pack of ale. Right. So he says, okay. So the next day, as he's walking back to the to the uh, plane, he, I said to him, you bring a drop of alcohol on this island, I'll kill you. Right. And so no he, more booze. He grins. <laughs> next day, plan lands. Dad goes out. Hey, where's the ale? Oh, right. Next day, now dad's two days sober. Next right. day, guy lands. And Papa, his ass is sticking out of the airplane, <laughs> <laughs> looking for the beer. And he looks, he looks at, he doesn't say a word. He looks at him, frowns, looks at me, frowns, and says, "Screw both of you." <laughs> <laughs> so I wait another two days. We're fishing. He gets sobered up, nice and sobered up. So I said, "Well, Papa, this is goodbye. I'm not yeah. coming to your funeral." Right? Yeah. But I said, I, "So if we can work something out." You got a, you got a, you're an alcoholic. You got a serious problem with violence and alcohol. Right. I said, "Oh, Danny, let's go. If we're going to talk, we got to get straight." He said, "I'm not an alcoholic." Yeah. <laughs> I said, "What do you mean you're not an alcoholic? You've been drunk for 50 years." He goes, "Exactly. I'm a drunk." <laughs> I said, "What do you mean you're a drunk?" He said, "I'm a Kelly. I'm an Irishman. I'm a drunk." I said, "He said I could quit drinking." I said, what do you, you could quit drinking? You and your drinking problem? He said, there you go again, Danny. He said, I don't have a drinking problem. You have a problem with my drinking. Right. But I went, oh, and I said, I got, up and kicked, got up and kicked a tree. <laughs> so then we got into, he said, yeah, I could, I could quit. I don't have a reason. Big enough reason. So I, I said, love this. I said, a big enough reason? Well, what What do you mean? You know, you, you know, you're fighting all the, you, your relationship. You, what? You don't have a reason? But, not a big enough one. I said, well, what would be a big enough reason? He said, a nice RV. A big <laughs> RV. My, my mother's a fine artist. Well, she's passed away recently, but uh, she was a fine artist. So they went to Arizona in the winters, and so she'd paint, eat fish. Right. But he needed an RV. So right. it was like 
Oh, no. I said, I'm not going to buy you an RV. <laughs> so he said, well, you wanted me to quit drinking, right? So we cut the deal. I yeah. said, I'll, I'll pay for half of the RV. He quit drinking. Yeah. I love that. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a drunk. And so until we get these things straightened out, we can't go forward here. Uh, it was that was hilarious and showed really. Uh, you're right. The guy is he's very smart. He's got a, a, a great sense of humor, and uh, more than that, he he has a um, an extraordinary willpower capacity. When he makes up his mind to do something, he does it. And, and just in, in a way that is really unheard of. And, I, you know, I think a lot of that really strong willpower, in, in the very best sense, shows up in you and shows up in you, you know, throughout your life and throughout the book. So, you know, you got some good stuff from the old man, as much of a bastard as he could be on occasion. One other cute story about him, this is later in life, a few years later, uh when I was home visiting again, and the grandkids were calling all over him. It was just really sweet to see. And so uh, he had changed his diet, right? So right. we got him eating mush in the mornings because he used to eat sausage, bacon, ham, right, eggs and butter, and white toast with butter, right? So I mean, boy, there, no, there's a breakfast. So we got him to change his diet and everything, and he quit drinking. He's changing his diet, and and uh, so I said, Papa, you know, I've I've uh, done a lot of quite a bit of psychological work and inquiry and i've actually associated with an international group the mankind project and right. you know they do this great work for you know resolving issues and i said uh, so if you ever want to and you know do a little work to find out what's underneath all this because you're now you're a dry drunk right right which isn't the most pleasant character right right so he goes danny i don't he said, I don't drink anymore, right? I said, yeah. He said, you got me eating mush in the mornings, right? He said, yeah. He said, can we leave my mind alone for a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, it, and I said, yeah. But he said, oh, good, oh, good. And, he said, and I promise you'll be the second to know. As soon as I want to open that door. All right. You'll be number two in line to find out. Yeah, I mean, through all of those things, you, you can see all the glimmers of a, a really quite extraordinary fellow. So we're back in high school, your sophomore year. Uh, you're dating a girl named Grace. In the winter of Dennis's sophomore year of high school, Grace became pregnant. Now, she's 16. Uh, you're both sophomores. But with your parents' permission, you decide to get married. So toward the end of her first trimester, Grace went to see the doctor. Dennis waited nervously in the waiting room. An hour ticked by. Grace finally emerged, tears streaming down her cheeks, and ran out the door. Your fiancé, Mr. Kelly, is not pregnant. But, Kelly challenged, how can she not be pregnant? It's called hysterical pregnancy, Mr. Kelly. It's the darndest thing I've ever seen. I can tell you that. Nonetheless, they were married not long after... And Grace conceived within a few weeks of their marriage, before Kelly had turned 17. The hysterical pregnancy was never brought up, and they told their friends and family that the first baby had been lost to a miscarriage. must have been a bit of a traumatic event, but 
you went straight forward with it and had a, a beautiful, gorgeous daughter. His daughter, a pink, perfect baby they named Christine, was born without complication. And Dennis felt, upon seeing her, an explosion of love and tenderness that knew no boundaries or language. At 18, he was a father, his formal education having stopped two years before. So you're now a husband and a father. You're working two jobs to support the family. You dropped out of high school. And things start then to get a little bit dark. At 18, he felt old and used up as if his best years were long behind him, and all that remained was the daily grind of an unsatisfied life. His wife clearly had no interest in him, and was likely having an affair with at least one other man. He, too, had strayed outside of his marriage vows, and the two of them now looked at one another like two roommates who had long grown tired of their mutual antics. He was miserable in his own home, miserable in his job, miserable in his life. So things are not going so well at that point. No, what happened was uh, following the pregnancy, as soon as she became pregnant, she also became fully disinterested in sex, which is quite common psychologically. Yeah. And... uh, Back then, there was no avenue or way to deal with that. So what happened was also, at that time, I had discovered sexual intimacy, and sexual intimacy was another vehicle for me to move deeper into consciousness. Yeah. So what? Yeah. I'm, I adore the divine feminine because of uh, tantric embrace. Right. And so sexuality was a vehicle for me for absolute honesty and, and intimacy. Right. And that was taken from me. Right. You know, not cruelly, but just biophysically. What happened is the hormonal interest was just absolutely not there. Pregnancy came, the child came, and so I was replaced by the child. Right. And so when that happened, I was left with no intimacy. I had, you know, and being what I say, I'm a recovering narcissist. I think they make the best teachers. Yeah. (laughs) But at that time, it was pretty undeveloped as yet mellowing of that or the awakening out of that state right so i was left nowhere to turn so i just worked harder and played harder and ran harder and drank more right and had no way of of, at that time had no skills had no way to 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 fix things so i just got crazy and so this all summated in a big decision uh sparked by a particular episode where Christine is crying. I said, be quiet, he thundered, he meaning you, picking her up roughly. She screamed as loud as her six-month-old lungs could manage, and Kelly struck her on her diapered rear and with his calloused hand. Her tiny eyes squeezed shut, opened, and their exquisite translucency stopped him. He suddenly saw the fear and terror in his infant daughter's face, wrapped in a spark of divine energy. I'm sorry, he mumbled. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. His rage consumed itself like an explosion that burns the oxygen out of a room, leaving Kelly with nothing to breathe. 
Who the fuck am I, he whispered, waiting to tear off his skin, wanting everything to just stop and release him from the grip of his suffering and never-ending misery. He vaguely sensed Grace in the room, shouting, but her words seemed distant and alien. Rising, he stumbled through the house and into the yard, then wandered down the streets until he reached the downtown of Green Bay. Without a goodbye, without so much as packing a suitcase, he was gone. He found himself on the streets of Milwaukee, and this is from Green Bay, wild-haired and wandering, having abandoned his wife and infant daughter and parents and younger siblings, along with his job and his belongings and everything he owned except for his car. Kelly passed six months in Milwaukee as a skilled laborer, only slowly returning to himself. From there, he moved to Chicago, where he augmented his income by hustling pool in the evenings. The nights were spent in smoke and dimly lit bars and pool halls, and Kelly came to note well the more colorful and less respectable characters living on the downside of society. Kelly and a man named Lou Cerrone became particularly tight. Lou was a minor mob enforcer for a larger family, and as such, he was always in the action, shaking business down, checking up on operations, handing off bribes to local beat cops, and enforcing the mob's business in a hundred other places. That must have been a, a colorful period. <laughs> it was an insane period, and I guess quite colorful. Uh, losing your mind uh, is always uh, quite a project, and then finding it again. So... <laughs> But running with that crowd temporarily in, in Chicago, it was it was a movie. It was a B movie. It was a bad movie. Yeah, and it just kind of kind of keeps getting crazier and crazier, um, leading up to another of these sort of uh, shocking events. Um, after another six months went by, Lou told Kelly he was in trouble with a mob, and that his life was in danger. He didn't elaborate, and Kelly was trained to not ask any questions. For safety, Lou spent the night at Kelly's apartment. Kelly awoke the next morning with the sun shining through the stained curtains. He peeked out onto the couch and saw it empty before something else hit him. The apartment wasn't just empty of Lou. It was empty of everything. His closet door was open, divulging nothing but coat hangers. The new $200 suits Kelly had bought were gone along with all his other clothes. A radio and record player were missing, along with a lamp, a clock, and his LPs. It was then he spotted his wallet, car keys, and shotgun sitting neatly on a tabletop underneath a hand-scrawled note. Kelly, check your shit just to show you how little you know about people. You don't belong in this business. Get out now while you can. Don't serve time like I did. Don't make money doing the dumb shit I do. The note was unsigned. Kelly had nothing except a wallet, a shotgun, and a small amount of cash. Lou had taken everything else. 
that must have been a complete shock. Yeah, I had no idea he was that enlightened master. <laughs> <laughs> but that that was a huge turning point for me and yeah. I gift, you know. Yeah. You know, from his lips to my ears. It's one of the things that um comes across from your story is uh, you know, how many clouds there are that have silver linings. And so much of your spiritual wisdom and uh, so much of, of, of your um, intelligence you know, has come from these types of experiences that are, you know, rather shocking and, and some of them brutal and all of them, you know, pretty amazing. And yet they add up to the makings of, of really a, a, a great deal of wisdom. So you must have kind of ambivalent feelings about these experiences because of all of the, you know, positive ultimate impact that these things had on you. It is all good, Bubba. It is all good, Bubba. 